right? It's almost like it's something on the balance sheet. That Hell, a hundred thousand percent, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, it's just... Hello and welcome to episode 175 of the Rockstar CMO Effing Marketing Podcast. It's Saturday the 15th of July. I hope you are well, you've had a great week and you are staying as sane as you feel you need to be. I'm your host, Ian Truscott. I'm no rock star, but with this podcast, I want to share the marketing street knowledge I've picked up on my journey from sysadmin to CMO with the help of some true rock stars. My guests and chums, who I hope will inspire the marketing rock star in you. You can find links to me, the guests, and all the things we talk about in the show notes on rockstarcmo.com, along with our street knowledge blog, newsletter, and all of our previous episodes. This week in the marketing studio, Jeff Clark and I discuss B2B influencers. I welcome back Todd Irwin, Chief Strategy Officer and founder of New York-based brand strategy and creative agency, Phaser. And I wind down the week with my chum, Robert Rose, in the Rockstar CMO virtual bar for a cocktail and a marketing But first, we need to pay the bar tab. I'll be back in a moment. We'll be right back. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash mpn to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash mpn. Terms and conditions apply. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. On to our first segment, The Marketing Studio with Jeff Clark, our resident rockstar CMO, strategy advisor, and former Forrester Research Director. Ian Truscott. Come on in. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. <laughs> yes. I, have... <laughs> I think you're tra- I understand your travels have put you a tad under the weather. Yes, I I traveled to uh, I traveled to the Netherlands and I picked up a souvenir which was covid. 
<laughs> so um yeah so which is weird because this podcast was started as a reaction to covid <laughs> You're and, uh, right. <laughs> and this is episode 170 f- 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 five <laughs> and, and, it, and it's back so yeah but, um luckily i am relatively okay to talk i think there might be a sneeze might be a sniff there might be a cough but i'll try and suppress all of those things Anyway, awesome thank you man how's how's you um and how's so, the weather things are um things going well as, as mm-hmm. uh, we we're discussing and preparing for family trip uh and uh right now we're having typical hot summer weather we actually had just gotten uh tremendous torrential rainstorms which are causing flooding and problems all over wow. new england and uh so you may have heard of those on the news um and uh but uh in our little patch we're doing okay had the same in europe last last week uh in yeah. the netherlands there, there are loads of road shut we are suffering some rain right now so yeah we've we've, we've we have not we've had a very damp july so far for sure anyway uh let's crack on to what we're going to talk about although obviously my health and the weather are very important <laughs> yes absolutely <laughs> I'm, I'm sure i'm sure you're fascinated listener to this um anyway last week we talked about the five and you dis- are they personas or are they archetypes i thought it was interesting anyway we talked archetypal about personas I, I i just came upon that when i was thinking about <laughs> <laughs> this this episode yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then we, as we, uh, as we tripped through those, we nearly fell down a rabbit hole on talk about influencers, simply because we've got a fair amount of experience there. Um, people like analysts, press, bloggers, and that, that sort of thing. And so I think last week we promised, well, we'll cover that next week, and let's dive into that. So, um, so that's what we're going to do. So, um, let me start with you. Oh, so um i have to do the uh, i need to remember the script so jeff what say you <laughs> <laughs> i've got a bit of brain fog yeah really so um well you, you said it was raining there so i assume the, yeah. the fog comes in with that but yeah. um i mean the first thing i think we, we just want to kind of cover I mean, you you kind of went down the list of you know who are influencers mm. but i mean i think the thing that's that's interesting these days is that you know it used to be there was there was the media, you know, there was the industry yeah. press that, you know, reviewed products and, you know, told people about them and all that. And then there was the the industry analysts, so the Forrester Gartners, you know, on and on, I, IDCs, et cetera. And, and it's really, I think, you know, it's just really b- blossomed where, you know, anybody can kind of set up their own shop and be a consultant, yeah. an analyst, a blogger, a podcaster, kind of like us. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and, and uh you know uh you know meet out um wisdom uh you know with the obviously best practices people can follow but then you know engaging with an actual client and kind of helping them through some sort of buying process and and so influencing as a marketer uh i think we both come to realize that influencing the influencers is an absolutely essential part of your uh marketing campaign strategy in your content strategy. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why we highlighted them as a persona. And I I also think it's interesting now, whereas in, you know, a few years ago, you'd have just said, um, oh, this is covered by ARPR, right? But now 
it's uh you know we're referring to this group as influencers and i think increasingly it's been i mean b2b has always been great at influencers because we had that ar training right with analysts and stuff but you've got to look beyond the classics right you've got to look to everybody who might be doing that i mean every market every market's going to have some small set of people who are like everybody listens to and Mm. you never know where whether they're going to be a official analyst at a big firm or whether they're just an individual that you know, again, HEP puts out their shingle and they're they're now advising clients. That's right. And the world is so complicated today, isn't it? In terms of, especially around marketing technology and B2B marketing technology, that everybody needs some help. So um, so we need to influence the influencers with our PR briefings and all that kind of stuff. Now, I, and, and I, I'm, I'm not going to claim any, any, uh, anything for these notes that you've put together. And I like <laughs> the format that you've done. So, but, so what I thought, so what we thought, you thought, we would do is just share a bit of our experience of working yep. with influencers rather than our normal, you know, lecture about here's five, here's the f- things five. You need to learn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll come to that. Absolutely. But what I was interested in, um, and when you suggested this idea is just, just sharing what you've picked up in your career, Jeff, and maybe I'll share a little bit of what I've, I've done as well. So when you've worked with influencers in the past, um, as a marketer so the thing is I think as you pointed out at the beginning right now we're bloggers and podcasters but both of us for people that don't know are former analysts so I was an analyst for a second tier analyst firm for a year called Gilben Group and you were obviously much more um, in, in, the, in the stars with, uh, <laughs> with serious decisions and, and Forrester. The I ivory was. tower as, as it was often referred to. Yeah. And of course, we both have um, marketing careers as well. So people know that I'm a CMO and, and you've had uh, leadership positions in a number of a number of um, MarTech co- companies and tech companies, really yeah. good to be tech companies that we've referred to as well. So with your marketing hat on, Jeff, what was the worst experience you had working with it? Let me pick, we'll just kick off on the positive. Yeah, really, yeah, really. <laughs> what's, what's the worst experience you had working with an influencer or an analyst? What was I know, maybe, maybe starting with the bad news is not a good, uh, yeah. is not a good, good foot to stand. But then we end on the positive. That's, that's yes. what we need to think about. Well, so one of the things that, that just really stuck with me and, and, I was more tangentially involved as opposed to personally involved in the, in the, uh, you know, work in the era work is I worked at a company where we had created a product that, um, was all about application integration. Um, you know, back when kind of moving from point to point to more broader, Mm. uh, types of integration was, uh, was a new thing. And Mm -hmm. we led, you know, this product was number one in the market defined as what was called the enterprise service bus. And the product was making money. I mean, we were putting out uh, RFPs, we were answering RFPs, and we're growing that particular product line very, uh, I think, you know, doubling, you know, every year for probably two or three years. And then as soon as we lost that leadership position to, which happened to be to IBM, and then a little bit later, Oracle, the sales just dried up. And it was like, it, it was it was one of the things where, you know, you can't get too hung up. I mean, it's important to have these analyst reviews and be a leader in your particular mm. market. But, you know, little guys just will get squashed by market gorilla, you know, partially because, you know, they've got more salespeople and things like that. But also yeah. because, you know, they do happen to have a little bit more leverage <laughs> with the yeah, gardeners yeah. and the foresters than the little guys do. And, you know, sometimes it just gets to a point where it's like they've, 
whether they've helped shape the way the market is being defined or they've helped shape how, um, you know, uh, products should be evaluated or they've just got more, you know, a lot of it is your ability to execute. So they got more salespeople, more support, more whatever that they can, you know, they can have successful customers then they're going to take that away from you. And I mean, that's not just happened at the company. I, I, not that I mentioned the company because I didn't want to do that, but I mean, I also, my first tech job was working at a word processing company where we had the number one word processor rated by all the magazines, but we were a little teeny company mm-hmm. and we got squashed by Microsoft and then IBM and then blah, 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 blah. And it's, it's uh, so it's just a, it's a big cautionary tale is that you can't just rely on those reviews. You got to be able to have the ability, the company has to have the ability to execute and continue to build a market. Hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, we're nine minutes in already. Um, So, uh, and I I think that's interesting because the point there is, is not to put all your eggs into the Forest of Gartner um, bucket, right? Or or basket. And that you need to think about other influences in your market that are going to um, they're going to help you, right? Yeah. So, so if that if that well runs dry, then you've got another channel of of influence, right? Absolutely. So, how about you, Ian? What about what's your <laughs> worst experience or something you've learned from? Oh, I have a few. I have a few things, and they're not not quite nicely structured as yours. I, I've had um, I've had a CEO, CEO arguing with an analyst. So, if you're going to put somebody in front of an analyst, you really need to make sure that they're media trained almost for that situation um i've had uh a di- a working with a different analyst firm a smaller analyst firm and i wanted to sponsor some of their work and they again it's a bit of the ceo thing they insisted that we work with one of their analysts that my ceo didn't like so trying to get that and they didn't really understand the nature of the relationship right i really would like to give you some money <laughs> and then um working uh, the worst one was I worked with a small firm and they didn't deliver and I and I also discovered they didn't pay their freelancers for the work that they did so this is kind of a different set of lessons is that um is that okay so with Forrester and Gartner you know where you are and and stuff but if you are going outside of that you need to be a bit careful about you know who you're contracting with and make sure that it's it's you know it's that you know they're going to deliver on what you what they've promised right Yep, absolutely. Oh, and also, I mean, an early example I had was an analyst who refused to engage with vendors. All they did was speak to customers, and they had a they wrote something in their report that was completely untrue. And I could have showed them the code that showed it was untrue, but no, they didn't want to deal with it. So, those are a few of my scars, but they're not quite as well structured as yours. <laughs> scars rarely are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we move on to the next one. Um, what? Uh, so, Jeff, with your marketing hat on, what was the best experience you had working with an influencer? I'm, I'm glad I get to keep my marketing hat on, so I can shift later. So. <laughs> Uh, you know, I remember um, the next was a company we both worked at is, you know, we were working with. So a number of people in the organization were working with a set of analysts to work on messaging. And it was all about, you know, this kind of burgeoning space of customer experience offerings, um, you know, when it was new and it was hot. Uh, and and, um, you know, the it, I just I really learned a lot about um getting the type of feedback needed for messaging. So I was more interested from the messaging side, uh, you know, so there are other people from the company doing briefings. I was on the listening end and and I would go in with questions about, you know, if we position it like this, if we say this or whatever, and you would get, you would get feedback and, and they don't, I mean, I think one of the things that 
that I really um, I think I learned out of that is that you really got to be prepared and you got to have really precise questions to kind of get the mm-hmm. feedback you you know you need or you want from them because they're not going to tell you I mean they're not going to tell you what they've told other vendors necessarily they're not going to uh, you know uh, divulge any secrets they may have but but if you ask the right question or you show them mm-hmm. things they'll give you the right feedback uh, and so I think that, that was. Uh, but that was a great learning experience for me. Yeah, but that's a, and that's also the point that I was uh, making earlier about having the CEO in the room with the with the analysts. And then you've got these two two um, uh, egos at play, right? And I think to to your point about really understand what is a briefing and what is an inquiry, and when it's an inquiry, really listen, have those questions right, and just put any of your just let them speak. Right. And yep. just put any of your points of view aside for the moment, let them speak. And then yeah. I, I once had it with, I, I should have put this in my words. There's one time where an argument with an analyst about what we thought the future of web content management was. And then, um, and then next time we had a briefing with him, he told an inquiry with him, he told us what the future of WCM was, which is exactly what we described in the previous <laughs> briefing. So it, it worked. It, can work. it worked. Yeah, it, can, can, it can work. You can influence for sure. Yeah. Well, they're, I mean, they're learning from you as much as, yeah. I mean, as Indeed. you were saying, you're, you know, the difference between a briefing where they're downloading to you and an inquiry yeah. where you're, you're trying to get information from them. It is, yeah. it, it's important, but as you're, as you're pointing out, it's like they can, they can kind of work, somewhat hand in hand you're it's all an exchange of information uh and yes you can influence them uh and hopefully then they can influence the clients yeah so actually you 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 mentioned a a good experience but uh you know positive experience but do you have any others that uh... yes absolutely i my what i enjoy because um i love our craft right and i love talking about our craft and whatever it is that we're working in um it's working with anybody who's truly passionate and curious about what they do right over opinion or ego like one, there was one time I had, I had lunch with an analyst and, and all he talked about was the fact that he was fighting to keep his little space within the you know within the big firm he worked yeah. in and it was all about him um but you know so for example I've done some work with Teresa Wrigley she's been on the show she's a damn analyst and she's a really good example of that passion right she doesn't she she doesn't care about her opinion or ego she knows what's right in her mind and she has a huge amount of experience um, and she's a great speaker. And when I was at, at Sensha, and she's super curious about what you're doing, but um, but she's not shy about giving you honest feedback. So you get the good and the bad, right? There's no point in working with an analyst who just says, oh, this is great. Thank you very yeah. much. Book me for your speaky slot or sponsor our research. Something yeah. that actually tells you yeah. how it is in a really nice, friendly way. I love that. And and they tell you that because they're passionate about the the category rather than about their own personal ego. I love that. Anyway. Yes. So over to me again, um, as I look at the notes. So, um, Jeff, you're putting a different hat on now, mate. As an influencer, what was the worst experience you had with a vendor? And what did you learn from that? So um, I think the worst experience or experiences, you know, is when you you get into these, you know, trendy uh, markets or something within a market becomes, you know, the buzz and, and it's just like, you know, you're, um, so, I mean, I've been, um, you know, when I was at uh, Serious Decisions and Forrester, you know, I was on lots of briefings that had to do with marketing attribution or analytics or uh, marketing resource management or digital asset management, as you were just talking about. Yeah. 
And it was just like, it was so easy to see when somebody is kind of going out of their way to jump on another bandwagon, like, you know, customer experience or like AI or like customer data platforms. It's like at one point, everybody that had anything to do with, with um, attribution or, or data management or uh, just providing lists became a CDP, the customer data platform. And, and it's like, this is where, you know, you've got to, as an influencer, you've really got to ask anal- or the vendors to be honest about, you know, and you get back to some of the topics we always talk about. So what are the customer needs that you're seeing? What are you yeah. meeting today? What's your roadmap to meet new needs? You know, what do you see the new needs are and what's your roadmap? And, mm-hmm. and as opposed to like getting, you know, all up in the buzz, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's it, it, sometimes you may want to, as the analyst, you may want to say, well, you know, maybe you should wait to catch up to the hype cycle because, you know, people aren't going to be buying that shit just yet anyway. So, <laughs> let's- yeah, no, I, I think this is a really this is a really strong topic and there's a good balance here. And the other thing is when you said the TLAs, I was thinking uh, one of the worst experience maybe of working with an analyst is is dealing with this made up. TLA shit that, they, that sort of contrivance between vendor and analyst that all of a sudden everything's a DXP and nobody's yeah. managing content anymore you know yeah. all that shit yeah. but anyway I've, I've digressed I think this is really because the thing I think from a from a um, from an influence perspective you want to know sometimes the point of view and the hype right is say like at the moment we're talking about AI you want to know well what's the vendor's point of view in this latest thing just in case uh, somebody I'm advising asks me about it but you don't want that to be the sole message that you get during an hour and a half briefing do you, you don't want to be banged over the head with AI yeah. when you're trying to figure out well how do you actually manage digital assets or how do you manage marketing resources or something I think it's a really important point and uh, sorry I was just going I would turn the table on you and say as yeah, an influence right. what was your um well, the Experience. funny thing is, yeah, the funny thing is, in in um, preparing preparing this, and you asked that question, um, I thought our, our answers were very different, but they're the same actually. Because when I was an analyst, it was trying to convince vendors they should show me a demo, show me the product, show me their differentiation, and not show the same slides everybody else was showing, because that was exactly what you were saying about the hype cycle. So it was like something's hot in the category right now. Let's let's hit him over the head with an hour and a half of slides on what's hot. I've already had five of those. What I want to know is your unique position, your unique differentiation. And I also want to see the product because that is what you're going to recommend to a client, right? Yeah. The other little pet peeve, and this might tease a little bit on the ego of an analyst, even when I was one, is when people don't bother to do any research into you. They don't bother looking you up on LinkedIn. They don't look at what you might care about. They don't look at what you've been writing about. And I think that is so, so fucking lazy because it's so easy to do, right? And you can really sort of build that human-to-human connection by saying, oh, you wrote about this. That's really interesting, customer engagement, and then weave into that. And you, you, and you to- if you're in analyst or influencer relationships, you totally got to do that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway. I've banged on too long. I keep talking about the time, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, last question, because we're going to do two of each, right? So this yep. is the, the last one. Um, Jeff, with your influencer hat on, what was the best experience you had working with the vendor? Well, you know, I w- so at Serious Decisions, I was um, each of us kind of owned a particular tech category that we were writing about. And, and uh, so one of the ones I had was marketing resource management. And um, so I was doing a lot of work and trying to, define, you know, 
I mean, we didn't, we kind of called them capabilities, customer needs, same thing. You know, let's get the details. Like when you're doing with MRM, which is kind of like this multifaceted platform, you know, Hmm. what are the capabilities people are looking for as they're trying to automate workflow? What are they looking for in managing assets? What are they looking for, you know, in terms of reporting and budget management? And, and so I got into these conversations with these different, um, you know, vendors about, about, um, you know, it's like, here's what I'm seeing. What are you seeing? You know, I can share with you my, my list of capabilities in these various areas. Can you give me information? And there was one vendor that, that I really kind of hooked on to who, um, you know, we ended up having such good exchanges. You know, they brought me in for like a day long workshop to one, help me learn about new capabilities, but then offer them feedback on how to, how to message it. And, and it's, um, so, I mean, I think to, to an extent, this is like, what we've kind of been talking about, about being honest and having that two way sharing of information. Yeah. You're not going to, or you shouldn't be telling them anything. You wouldn't tell any other competitor, uh, you know, any other vendor who might be a competitor of theirs. But on the other hand, if, if the vendor is good at working the relationship, they're going to try to get more out of you as opposed to some that may be pulling the wool over your eyes because they're, they're, they're trying to act like they're making advances in the market mm-hmm. when in fact they're really not. Yeah, and and they're easily it's easy to see through that sometimes, isn't it? And 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 also, like when when people are working working you in a such a way that it's obvious that they're trying to work you, you know, and and trying to influence you, um, or schmooze you or whatever, and it's you know it's all bullshit. So yeah, um, yeah, I think it's so. From your point of view, do you, uh, mm-hmm. how about you? What was your best experience? I have a very simple one, luckily, because uh, uh, we're running out of time. Uh, it's not so much when I was an analyst, although I think this is a common theme of both working in both places is, but as an advisor, I think it's working with a passionate CEO as who has a point of view working with, and I'm working with vendors that are on a mission, you know, and there's something really to get your, your teeth into and to talk about and engage with rather than feature functions and all that kind of stuff. People that really get it and get and have a passion for it. And sometimes it's like I was saying about the CEO who argued with the analyst. Sometimes that passion can be mis, misplaced. But I think they're the best people to talk to as an analyst, people who are, who are genuinely passionate about that category. Um, because I think you get so much insight there, and they're so open, and you get access to their customers and all that good stuff. Oh yeah, that that's that that that's when it really clicks. Yep. All right, mate. So um, that's the conclusion of this uh, this particular conversation. So I hope the, the not one of our normal five F in fundamentals, but I'm sure we'll get to the five F in fundamentals. We could probably pull five things out of this, <laughs> throw an F in yeah, front of it. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Now you're going to be on holiday for two weeks. Yes. Uh, so sorry. Sorry to the listeners who are going to miss you, Jeff. Um, and <laughs> I'll miss, I'll miss so them too. <laughs> so I think you're back on the 5th of August. Yep. Um, and I, I, it was only polite for me to let you choose the song and not even influence the song or anything like that, but just let you choose the song. What's the song? Well, we're talking about influencers and you've chosen not to influence me. So I wanted to pull <laughs> uh, Bad Influence by the B-52s in 1992. Break out of the mold before the mold sets in. It's kind of like a, what you know, it's kind of like a lesson thing. It's like, you know, don't mm. be, don't be, uh, uh, you know, taken over by bad influence. Um, and I'm not sure. They were probably talking about drugs or something like that. But <laughs> we're going to talk about technology. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's what we pulled together, Rockstar CMO, the Rockstar and the CMO. I love that. Thanks, mate. And so I will see you in a couple of weeks and Absolutely. I'll play out with Bad Influence by B-52. 
Um, have a great holiday, my friend. Thank you very And much. I'll, I'll see you back in soon. Take care. Bye bye. Thank you, Jeff, and that was a little bit of the B-52s, a bad influence. Jeff will be back with his good influence in a couple of weeks. And in the meantime, let me know what topics I should pick his brains with. You know where to find us, rockstarcmo.com. Right, time to welcome back Todd Irwin, Chief Strategy Officer and Founder of New York-based brand strategy and creative agency Phaser, who brings his 30 years of brand strategy experience to the show for the third time. Always a pleasure to catch up with Todd. Hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome back, Todd, to Rockstar CMO FM. How are you, my friend? I'm good, Ian. How are you doing? I'm doing really good. It was really, um, it's really fun to catch up with you again. You were last on episode 145, which I don't know where the time is going this year, but uh, yeah, that's quite some time ago. But for so for the listeners that didn't hear episode 145, tell us a bit about yourself. So I am the chief strategy officer at a brand strategy agency called Phaser, F-A-Z-E-R, in New York City. Although I shouldn't say that we're from New York City. We're virtual. We've got people in London. Yeah. We've got people in Boston, Charlotte, all, all over the place. Um, yeah. We've actually gone 100% virtual. But yes, we're a brand strategy agency. Mm-hmm. Um, do mostly foundational brand strategy work for companies of all sizes. Yeah. Yeah, happy mm. to be here again, man. How are I, you? Everything good with you? I'm doing well. Good, thank you very much. I'm still plugging away with this old podcasting lark. So all right, I love this podcast. <laughs> it gives me the chance to talk to people like you, which is always <laughs> great. <laughs> And so, um, phase of that. So you you work with brand. What what sort of companies do you usually work with? You know, we're not sectorized. For us, it's mm-hmm. more about our methodology, our construct, how we approach positioning brands in markets. Uh, I I think. At the core of what we do is foundational brand positioning and then building mm-hmm. story, narrative, and identity around that. Um, we look really closely at markets and help brands figure out how they can compete better. Bottom line. Right. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Well, th- that's the reason. Well, I mean, there are many reasons I can have you back on, Todd, because I always enjoy a conversation with you. But um, for the people that know anything about my day job, I'm the CMO of an acquisitive B2B software company. And I'd read that you'd been doing some work handling brand mergers and and mm. pulling companies together and figuring out what you're going to do with the brand with those. And I thought to myself, I will catch up with Todd. Yeah. <laughs> I understand you guys would do a lot of work in that area. What sort of things do you work on when it comes to M&A and acquisitions and that stuff? You know, a lot of the companies that come to us are going through some sort of merger acquisition. So, you know, the reason behind why companies want to do some sort of brand refresh or brand transformation is that uh, they've gone through you know, some sort of uh, business change. Mm. Uh, They've acquired companies. They have to figure out how to merge those companies into the master company or uh, the holding company or figure out how to take those companies that they've acquired and merge them into uh, a master brand uh, and really just figure out like how to strategize that from a brand standpoint. How does it affect 
their customers, how does it affect, affect their employees or team members? Um, and it's, it's actually quite complicated because it's it's not just customers and team members, but it's also the products too. Um, and a a lot, I would say a a lot of the time it's about, you know, uh, we're going to acquire this company, not just for the people and the revenue, Mm -hmm. but there's a specific like hero product that they Mm -hmm. want to acquire. So, um, yeah, that's where we get it. But it's also it's so tied to the emotion of the company, isn't it? I mean, that's the, that's the idea of great brand building, anyway. But mm-hmm. people feel it, so you start tinkering with the brand when you're bringing people together. It's yeah. it, it's it's a challenge, isn't it? Is that what you find as well? Yeah, I mean, it all has to do with customer perception and loyalty. Customers have yeah. strong emotional attachments to brands, and those yeah, attachments yeah. influence their perception of and loyalty to a company. So during uh, a merger or an acquisition, it's important to manage branding Mm -hmm. in a way that retains and attracts customers. You know, the failure to do so can lead to a massive loss of customers and subsequent Mm -hmm. revenue. If it's not done carefully, it's got to be precise. It's got to be planned. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's why, you know, that's why we get hired. Yeah. Do you also find not just with the customers but internally like you're bringing these two organizations together and brand is like the tribal flag that they all carry around and and they and some of that internal stuff is sometimes a challenge is that do you see i mean i've seen it in my career for sure and and i i don't work for for the massive brands that you guys work with just b2b software companies but i sometimes see that with people they identify so much with the brand bringing those people together operationally is tough yeah yeah, it's that it's that employee morale, right? Yeah, and then yeah. for leadership, it's about retention. Like you know, you yeah. know, employees, uh, just like customers, identify mm-hmm. with the brand they work with uh, yeah. or work for. Represent, you know, when there's an abrupt change during a merger or an acquisition, it can cause discomfort, um, uncertainty amongst those employees. Um, so, like you know, effectively managing branding during the process mm-hmm. of that M and A, uh, you know. That's all about how companies can assure their employees and maintain that morale um, and yeah. limit that turnover. So um, that's what yeah. chief executives, ex- you know, executive leadership teams are really looking to do. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and one of the things I've heard, so I, so I've been in companies that have been acquired. I've been in companies that have done the acquiring and mentioned mm-hmm. that just a moment ago. And the term I hear a lot is brand equity. Everybody claims they have brand mm. equity. And this is why that you, that you shouldn't fuck with what we do because we have brand equity, right? How mm. do you, and you, you do this at a much bigger level with much bigger brands. How yep. do you, how do you look at that? How do you measure that unique value of the acquired brand and judge and measure it? Uh, you know, the judging and measure measurement in branding isn't as precise as with performance marketing, <laughs> where you can actually look at yeah. numbers and see things go up and down. But yeah. without a doubt, value uh, mm-hmm. and value creation when it comes to mergers and acquisitions is uh, at the forefront. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know we are constantly working with, uh, you know, VCs and and private equity companies that are looking to use branding as a value creator to, you know, uh, double, triple, quadruple the value of a brand. And they do that also through M&A. You know, the bottom line is that a strong brand creates significant value and they serve, you know, as assets that contribute to a company's bottom line. Um, You know, brand drives business growth. Um, You know, so during a 
you know, a merger and acquisition, you know, an effective strategy um, maximizes the value, right? It's the, we- yeah, it's yeah. the reason we get hired. Measurement, though, is difficult. And if yeah. you look, I mean, this is, you know, business leaders are constantly debating this, you know, mm. what's the value of a brand? You know, what's the value yeah. of a market? Um, yeah. um, a lot of times, you know, it's made up. Um, but it's all about <laughs> perception. It is. Yeah. It really is, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know? Tell, the, so tell that, the story better and you can sell it for more. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's that's the point you're making there, isn't it? That a, a company with a strong brand in an M&A situation is going to have more value as a company because it has a strong brand, right? It's almost like it's something on the balance sheet. That Hell, a hundred thousand percent, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it's this thing that's really hard to measure. So, how does that work in, in the sort of area where you work, where it's kind of like, um, are you helping? So you're mostly helping me sort of post that period, right? So the M&A has happened and now you go figure this out. Is that where you end up? Yeah. This, I mean, this is really the intangible part of it. You know, yeah, you know, you've yeah. got people like Elon Musk who are talking about the value of Twitter or the value of Tesla. Yeah. And yeah. he's just, a lot of it is his personal opinion. But it's yeah. also his a pers- his personal opinion as to what the story is behind the brand and that vision. And the mm. vision drives value. You know, we talk a lot about, you know, when we're doing brand work and brand strategy work, uh, this, the idea of deep storytelling and its effect on valuation. Um, and, we, you know, we work with a lot of different types of VCs. Some are more... Uh, uh, aggressive, some are more conservative. The ones that are more aggressive push valuation farther. The ones that are more conservative are looking more at spreadsheets. So, <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, yeah, yeah, but it really yeah. is about perception, and I think it's about storytelling. 100%. Yeah. I, I love that point because um, the storytelling thing I think is important when you're acquired because yep. I, I've worked for a company, I've been, like I said, I've been acquired. And then if you get acquired and the the company that's acquired you has already got the story in place for why they've made that acquisition mm-hmm. rather than just be financial, I think it just it's, it, it greases the wheels, doesn't it? If that story is already in place. Yeah, I mean, a, a big part of the work that we do is yeah. finding the stories, not just with mm-hmm. the brands, but with the products, bringing everything together into one cohesive story. Mm-hmm. Um, and then telling it in a way that's organized. So there's the, you know, the, with, with brand positioning, right? If you've yeah. read any of, you know, Acker's <laughs> books on brand positioning, it's about yeah. finding that singular idea. But below that singular idea, there's yeah. that deep brand story that uh, a company needs to tell. The deeper, we, you know, we see this and we have seen this for years, is that the yeah. deeper you go, the more valuable it is, the more you attract customers. And, um, and f- specifically for companies that are going through M and A, um, you know, give it a reason um, and also increase the value. So yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you think some of the and and do you then have to sort of align the values and stuff of of, of particular brands? I don't I, I don't know enough about your customers and, and and I know that before we were chatting, it was like I can't mention them at the moment. But um, <laughs> yeah. when you're working with a customer, with a client. Do you sometimes find that they've made an acquisition that's got a slightly different set of brand values and you need to then align those? Like, I don't know, if uh, Patagonia bought, I yeah. don't know, some, something else, then everything yeah. needs to then come into the Patagonia family. I would, you know, I'm just picking them as the most obvious <laughs> brand choice everybody seems to be talking about at the moment. Yeah. Do you, is that the sort of work you need to do as well, get those values right? 
Absolutely. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. brand values are, are, are critical. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I wouldn't, I can't say that I can think of a time where there were conflicting brand values from one right. acquired company to the company that was, you know, acquiring it, but they definitely have different brand stories. Yeah. And yeah. so you need to merge one story into the next. I, I, you know, I was talking to, um, one of my strategists recently about, you know, it's like, it's like taking two songs and using <laughs> a, a verse from one song and yeah. plugging into a verse of a different song, right? Yeah, yeah. You gotta, it's still, that one song still has to work. Yeah. So, um, and that's constantly what we're doing. We're taking stories, merging them together and creating mm-hmm. cohesive stories for mm-hmm. brands. So. No, I love this. I love this work that you're doing. So what's the approach you take? How do you decide which, parts of the song <laughs> from one brand to take <laughs> and which parts from another i mean there, there yeah. must be a level of of, of of work and research i know you were just saying there isn't you know a lot of data around the value of brand but yep. and you can't all run on gut feel all the time but how do you how do you then decide look the, these are the core things i need to keep about this brand yeah i mean the way that we do it is you know positioning is at the core so mm-hmm whether we're positioning the master brand and looking to take those acquired companies, acquired brands and interjecting them into a master brand and creating that one cohesive brand story, Mm. or even with product strategy, you know, we take the same uh, approach where we're looking at how is the product positioned in the market? And if you're acquiring other products from those acquired companies, then how do those new products either merge into other products Mm -hmm. or create new products for that, master brand that's doing the acquiring. And so from a positioning standpoint, um, and I I know we spoke about this last time was, you know, the way we approach it is through, we do a lot of depositioning work. So we're, we're looking at competitors and Mm -hmm. we're looking at customer pain points and trying to figure out how do we solve to that pain Mm points so that it shines a, a negative light on competitors. We do the same exact thing for product strategy as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're constantly taking that construct um, and applying it to master brands. We're applying it to product strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's at the the height uh, of everything that we do. Mm-hmm. Before so it all aligns from top to bottom, and um, from the from yes. the acquiring big brand to, down to the product that they've just brought in through the acquisition, right? So that that's correct. Works. Is there a point in which sometimes you have to think, oh, well? The brand that's been acquired, it's better if we just keep totally separate and that the consumer doesn't know that it's owned by this new brand. Or is it always for you about joint value between the master brand, I think you referred to it, and the product? Or is there any times where you have to make that decision? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are some times when a um, a company has a brand architecture where they, they act not only as a standalone company, but they also act as a, um, a, a house of brands mm. where they might make an acquisition where a company becomes a partner brand. Yeah. Um, and then the strategy becomes, well, do we want to communicate um, that that partner brand is sponsored by somehow? a part mm. of the master brand company. Mm. It does happen quite, quite often. Uh, yeah. It has to do with, uh, you know, that, that sort of positional master brand strategy. Yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, we absolutely do that. But it just starts to, I mean, do you, do you find that then, I mean, it must be really interesting to sit in those rooms mm-hmm. that, that you sit in because you've got a whole committee of people that presumably have their own sort of interests mm-hmm. that they want to be 
represented in this brand strategy do you ever find yourself like this is just too fucking complicated guys it has to be called this it can't be this sponsored by this with a bit of this on the side it has to be this is the brand now yeah it happens quite 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 a bit um i mean we typically we take a a close look at what the business strategy is first Right. So the brand strategy has to align with the business strategy. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we had an instance uh, about two years ago with uh, with a fintech company where they were, you know, they hired us because they were doing uh, a merger mm-hmm. and they were going to take the company that they were merging with and turn that company into the master brand. Right. And when we looked closely at the market, we saw that their brand actually was what the client wanted mm-hmm. but it was because the the other company was the bigger company mm-hmm. they felt that they should be the master brand yeah. so we were like okay listen you know this is here's the customer here are the competitors here's what the customer's looking for you know this mm-hmm. one brand that you know is is solving the pain points mm-hmm. and also had the best brand story. So the work that we did on the brand strategy side actually influenced their um, approach to how they had originally saw the mm-hmm. strategy and it changed. So yeah. they ended up um, flipping their strategy because of the brand strategy work that we did. Oh, that's, so I it mean, happens. Yeah, it happens. no, it's good to hear it in my way. You, you've really got to be, dispassionate in a way haven't you about when when you have that that strategy just stream oh the bigger one is going to take over or this is going to you've really got to focus on what the customer's feeling about that brand and how they perceive that brand in market right and it doesn't it's not always going to be the biggest one it's going to be the one they care about the most isn't it right exactly you know what's the most you know who's going to deliver the most relevance yeah um and you have to think in terms of you know the market the customer what do they want to buy? How do they feel? Um, who's solving their pain points? Um, and what's the best strategy to get them to choose you over the competitors? Yeah. It's really that simple. Yeah. And take, you know, there's a lot of um, subjective opinions by <laughs> leadership teams based yeah. on what their background is and where they come from. So a lot of politics goes into it. I mean, there have been some, you know, a few fortune 500 projects that we've done Mm -hmm. where it gets really really complicated on the politics side Mm -hmm. you've got divisional presidents vps they all have like personal stakes in the company have to get involved and those things actually play into the decision making Mm -hmm. and they shouldn't it should be all about what's the most important thing about brands leave your personal politics out of it but brand strategy agencies yeah. you know they have to navigate those those relationships and yeah. it makes it complicated it really yeah. does yeah, yeah absolutely that's what i was alluding to at the beginning because i've seen that just in a small way in some of the organizations i've worked in in my career that because their brand was on their business card and then the vp of bloody blah brand yeah. then they care deeply about it and it, it's very personal to them very emotional about them but the best thing for the company is actually for everybody to move forward and it's going to change for everybody right so exactly exactly and losers. Yeah, yeah i love that yeah. all right so um we're coming up to time i can't believe this already todd i'm going to come to our last question and and this this conversation was great last time we were on and so w- last time when you were on the podcast you threw brand purpose into our rockstar cmo swimming pool which <laughs> All the listeners know is our portal to marketing hell. It's been a few months since we chatted. Are you sticking with that? Uh, yes. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I want to clarify something about uh -huh. brand purpose is yeah. that I think it's important. Mm -hmm. uh, I really do. Yeah. The problem is that a lot of companies want to lead with brand purpose and it isn't the most important thing when it comes to what the customer is looking for. Mm -hmm. So do I want to, you know, uh, do, excuse my French, do I want to shit on brand purpose? No, I do not. <laughs> um, but I, cause I do think it's very important. Sometimes mm. it's the second most important thing, mm. but without a doubt, the most important thing is figuring out customer pain points. How do you solve them? Yeah. Right. And then how do you solve them in a way that, uh, makes customers want to, uh, buy your brand, buy yeah. into your brand. No, uh, I'm with you, man. And it, and it also, it's about your relevance in that conversation and it's depending on what the purpose is. I mean, if you're completely right. irrelevant to the conversation, don't go there. <laughs> right. right. And that ultra relevance comes from yeah. solutions, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. So absolutely love it. Thanks for coming back on the show, Todd. I really enjoyed that conversation. It's really important to understand, you know, brand is such an emotional thing. And when you're in a merge and acquisition situation, we've got to deal with it internally and externally. So that's really good to get your insight. So when people spin the dial on the interwebs, where are they going to find you, mate? Uh, the agency is called Phaser, F-A-Z-E-R. The website is phaser.agency, F-A-Z-E-R.agency. Um, yeah, you can find us pretty easily. We're All there. Right, and I'll include links to you and your agency in the show notes. Thank you very much for coming on again. I'll speak to you soon, mate. Ian, great to see you, man. Enjoy the rest of your day. All right, you too. Cheers. Thank you, Todd. Great topic. We'll definitely have him back in a couple of weeks and dive a bit more into that whole branding thing. Right, it's time to wind down the week in the Rockstar CMO virtual bar and join my friend and content marketing guru, Robert Rose, chief troublemaker at the Content Advisory for a cocktail and a marketing thought. Good evening, Robert. What are you drinking? Oh, hello, my friend, and welcome to the bar, and welcome to the weekend. Yes. Um, it is. Uh, it has been a long week, I think, for both of us, mm -hmm. um, as it were. Uh, you, perhaps a bit <laughs> a bit longer <laughs> week than, than the average bear. Um, won't go into that necessarily, uh -huh. but you can certainly go into it if you'd like okay. to. But um, what, what we have, hopefully, this, uh, this, this week is something to bring you into the weekend with a bit of a health tonic. Mm -hmm. um, uh, as it were, but, uh, yeah, it's hot here. It's I, I, I know it's been hot there. Uh -huh. Um, and, uh, you know, all of a sudden we, people are going, Oh yeah, climate change. It might be real. <laughs> um, because it is friggin' hot. Um, and so for the bar, for the drink that mm -hmm. we have this evening, we have something that is <clears throat> related to something that we've had, uh, in the bar before. Mm -hmm. You'll remember at one point we made something called ranch water. Oh yes. Um, and ranch water is a very specific Texan drink yes. uh, from my childhood. Mm -hmm. uh, not that I was drinking in childhood, but not that I wasn't <laughs> either, um, to be honest. Uh, but it is a, of course, tequila and a very specific brand of sparkling water called Topo Chico. Well, this cocktail is a vodka-based cocktail, and it's also mm -hmm. good for a hot summer day. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very refreshing as a, as a summer drink to sort of cool off just a bit. Um, and it's also really good if you don't like overly sweet drinks, which of course, you know that I don't. Yeah. Um, and so the, it's called the Chilton, the Chilton cocktail. Ooh. And what we want is a little bit of coarse salt, 
Um, and um, you can basically, what you're going to do is salt the rim of the glass. So you can do that by either uh, putting a lime or a lemon around mm-hmm. the glass um, rim and then dipping, of course, the rim of the glass into a, a plate that has that coarse salt on it. And that gives you your nice salt rim. Then you have a lemon wedge, of course, and lemon over lime here. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna recommend, although lime is fine as well. Yes. And then a little bit of uh, freshly squeezed lemon juice into that glass, and then you know, I mean, one and a half parts, one ounce, you know, what what whatever is your flavor of <laughs> vodka? Um, I like, uh, the, you know, I am a vodka snob, so I'll, really? I'm gonna go with a premium vodka here because I think premium vodkas are are better. Mm-hmm. And then this is where we add, and it looks a little like the ranch water, which is uh, the sparkling mineral water. Topo Chico is a great one here because it also has that sort of citrusy taste to it. Um, And so basically you end up with sort of a very refreshing salt rimmed uh, vodka, lemon, uh, and sparkling water. And it's just absolutely fantastic. That sounds amazing. I wonder where the name came from. The the name itself um, mm-hmm. basically uh, originated in Lubbock, Texas, so very much like the ranch water. And uh-huh. I'm going to assume – I don't know this for a fact, but I'm just going to make it up. Uh-huh. I am like ChatGPT. I just make up facts. <laughs> um, that become truth. That it was basically someone who ran out of tequila and said, hey, what else can we put in this thing? And maybe, <laughs> maybe hey, I've got some vodka. Let's do that. <laughs> That's nice. It sounds English to me because the Chilton, because the Chilton's is a set of hills that isn't terribly far away from where I live. So I see. Uh, yes, it, sound, it sounds very. Uh, anyway, so I shall attempt, as I have done for the last hundred and over weeks, uh, to make this very drink just using the ingredients of my desktop bar. So as you may have heard, I put some some um, ice already in my glass. I assumed we had ice because it's fucking hot there, right? Sorry, it's quite hot. Oh, yes, indeed. Oh, this using... is a very very much an iced drink, yes. Yeah, I was using the metro- um, meteorological terms there for, for heat. Um, and I've, I've obviously put in here some of the most English of vodkas, which would be, of course, Hendrix Gin. And um, what else we put in there? Oh, the Topo Chico. Okay, excellent. Well, we both know from... Um, our previous experience with Topo Chico is the very best Topo Chico that you can buy in England is, of course, uh, cucumber tonic water by the good people at Fever Tree. And I shall sample this. This looks very refreshing. Mmm! That is delicious, Robert. I could drink one of these every week. And what are we calling that? I suspect you might, yeah. What do we call that? We call that a Chilton. Very nice. And you called it a health tonic just a moment ago. And just to share the thing you were alluding to with the listener just a moment ago is, uh, yes, I got COVID this week. So uh, uh, a health tonic is exactly what I need. <laughs> it's, it'll cure what ails you. I guarantee cure you that. Ails you. Yeah. Well, the, so if nothing else, it'll put you to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So um, where will we be taking these wonderful health tonics? Well, I think we need to take these health tonics. Have you been, um, you being all world traveler and and, uh, European and all of that, (laughs) have you been to Ibiza? Um, I have not, no. I, so I, have you seen the the new uh, Wham documentary on Netflix? (laughs) I'm a huge fan of Wham back in the day, man. Yeah, I am too. I am too. Have you seen, have you seen the documentary? Yes. It is. I mean, you talk about talk about a friendship, right? Talk yeah. about a yeah. remarkable, extraordinary friendship of yeah. those two, yeah. 
those two. So anyway, I won't spoil it. It's a great documentary. But of course, their big leap came when they went and did some music videos down in Ibiza. Yeah. And they showed the footage from that. And I went, that looks amazing. Mm-hmm. I've, mm-hmm. So I think we have to get down to Spain, get to Ibiza, yeah. sit on a beach, uh, put our toes in the water, see all of the glitterati of celebrities yeah. um, and uh, and drink these uh, Chilterns. Yeah, very nice. I think I might be the only English person who's never been to Ibiza, I think. And I, and I had to think for a moment because I've been to lots it of the It seems to be. So it seems to be a very popular <laughs> place for English it vacations. Is. It is. I've been to all the other ones. I've been to New York, Tenerife, everywhere else. I just haven't been to. Anyway, um, so this is wonderful. And we're sitting drinking these. These are perfect for a scene like that. And then when we finish chatting about our love of Wham, um, when, <laughs> <laughs> when the conversation turns to marketing, what are we going to be chatting about this week? Well, you know, I mean, it, it's it, thank goodness there's something other than AI for us to talk about, um, <laughs> which of course is the remarkable rise of Threads. And oh I know you've God. just you've just recently signed up for the Threads, have you not? Yes, I was on there on day two, which is very unlike me. But yes, uh, I have very few followers, but I was almost straight away after the announcement on quite early doors, which is uh, which is. Uh, a little bit yeah. of coolness for me, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. It, it's 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 fascinating. It's remarkable, of course. Mm. Everything that has seen, you know, as as we record this, somewhere around 108 million users. Uh, quite honestly, in two weeks, which is just yeah. absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and you know, one of the things that I've been doing is looking at sort of the 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 trend here and. You know, when you start looking at the value created, um, I think there's two interesting things for us to look at as marketers here. And so first of all, obviously, it's way too early to predict success for this <laughs> platform, right? I mean, it's literally, it's been out a week and a half and we're, you know, with 108 million users, you go, wow, that's fantastic. That's They've reached critical mass, but we'll see if it lasts for the rest of the year and and all of that. And they said that they're not even going to monetize for this year. They'll, if they monetize with advertising at all, it won't be until early next year. And I think that's smart because they're going to, they're going to try and see if it sticks. But mm-hmm. the uh, interesting thing here is that I, what I just did some back of the envelope math. And if one of the major uh, metrics for a social media, a media company metric is something they call ARPU, which mm-hmm. is of course average revenue per user. Yeah. And if you look at something like Facebook, Facebook in the U S and Canada, for example, the ARPU is $48 uh, a year, mm-hmm. which is, uh, excuse me, a quarter. And that's an incredible number, right? That's just incredible. Now, obviously uh, much more of a comp here would be a Twitter ARPU, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if we look at threads. And so Twitter's uh, ARPU right now, quarterly ARPU is around $5, right? So um, maybe even lower now since Elon <laughs> has, has really taken things private and really screwed the company up. But yeah. at one point when there were public numbers last year, it was around $4.96, about, about five bucks. Mm-hmm. Well, if you think about that just for a second, so let's use $5 as a nice average quarterly ARPU if they were choosing to monetize the platform. That means that literally in two weeks, Meta has created a $2 billion revenue amazing. business. Yeah, amazing. Um, just 
overnight, just yeah. literally overnight. Now, of course, all the caveats exist, blah, blah, blah. Do they keep it engaged? Can they monetize it? Will people stay? All of those things are, are but, but just even the theory of that is, 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 is incredible. And the aha moment it gives me, and this is what we can really talk about, is it's the power of a subscribed and engaged audience. Because, I, you know, and this is something I posted on LinkedIn uh, as well as Threads. I said, look, the the magic here, the magic of of what happened here, is when you ask yourself, how do you get a you know how do you get a hundred million subscribers in two weeks? Well, you start with two point three yeah. billion the week before, that. right? Yeah, yeah. And so it was as easy as saying yes. And that's the learning here. Because what so many businesses, when we think about content marketing and we think about building Mm -hmm. a media-oriented or a subscribed audience to our business as a product or a service brand, Mm -hmm. our immediate brains go to building that first audience, which is hard and it's sweaty and it's difficult and and, and we struggle at it and it takes years. Yeah for us to build a minimum viable or at least yeah. a maximum viable <laughs> audience. Yeah. But the second one is easier. And the third one mm-hmm. is easier still. And the fourth one is easier still because you're got, you start with that audience asset to begin with. Mm-hmm. And there's a great example of this in front of us. Just, you know, of course the threads is like illustrating it perfectly, but yeah. I often talk, we often talk in content marketing about the Cleveland clinic. Yeah. And the Cleveland Clinic, of course, huge case study when it comes to content marketing. They built their health essentials blog starting in 2013. And by, you know, last year, they're, you know, they're getting, you know, tens of millions of visitors every month. They've monetized it through advertising and sponsorship. Mm -hmm. They're making millions of dollars of revenue every year from their blog. So it's a marketing department that pays for itself. But when they launched their second platform, and that took 10 years for them to build that, that, that level of value. But their health library, which they launched about four years ago, immediately, like on day one, started with 200,000 visitors almost from the very beginning. Because why? They had a great lead-in audience, right? They already had an audience that was ready, willing, and could just say yes to looking at the health library. It's just a different topic, a different part of their journey from a brand they already trust that's delivering them great content. And by now, in 2023, simply, you know, four or five years later, from the from the launch they now have millions two million monthly visitors and they're starting to monetize it as well yeah so the second one was exponentially easier and what i've been talking with brands about is like if you've got twenty five thousand people in your email database or you've got fifty thousand in your email database how many of them are true audiences in other words are subscribed to you Mm. and take action and like what you're giving them and are you know valuing what you give them because that audience is your core audience. And if you can grow that yeah. to a certain percentage of your total addressable market, well then, yeah, maybe your blog doesn't provide all the value that you want, but then you launch that podcast or you launch that resource center or you launch that digital magazine or you launch something else. You don't have to start from scratch. You're starting from an already built-in audience that's getting some value. Now you're just adding value and adding to the stickiness and engagement of that audience and you're starting with a head start, so it just gets easier. And that's the learning that we can take from this and why it's such an important thing to build our own media audience. Mm, yeah, and um, also, apart from building upon the audience, love this, the, the other thing that, of course, Threads has done really well, or Meta have done with that, is they're offering 
And this is something I think that a lot of um, sort of SaaS platforms can learn learn from, isn't it? Is they they've give, they've created a adjacent product that is that is not only attractive to their existing audience, but will also attract more you know a broader audience or a different audience right so twitter people aren't necessarily insta people but it's attracted twitter people into threads that perhaps weren't insta people and the insta people are moving on threads see what i mean it's like you're you're just extending sure there's offering, some, yeah. and there's probably a little bit of both of yeah, that yeah, right i mean yeah. you know but and, and what's interesting is to me is that you know and i'll just chalk myself up here as yeah. a as a case study is that for those of us who eh, Instagram was yeah. okay, like yeah. I've never been a big Instagram user. Yeah. I only use it for uh, my, you know, vacation photos mm-hmm. occasionally. You know, it's like I, I was looking. It's like I post a picture on Instagram maybe once every two months, right. and and it's like okay, mm-hmm. that's interesting. And so what did I did? What did I not do? I didn't sign up for Instagram verification. Yes, um, and yeah. pay the money. Yeah. Because why? I didn't. Yeah. There's no reason for me to. Yeah, yeah. But now that Threads comes along, well, <laughs> yeah. now it's got something that I not only want to expand my usage of, yeah. because it can be now part of my business, and I yeah. can actually use that social media platform for business yeah. as I continue to use Instagram. Well, now it makes me want to get verified yeah. because I actually <laughs> do want to build a following on Threads, and I actually do want to upsell and make make this a centralized platform for myself. Yeah, I did exactly the same. I, um, and the thing for me as well, I think that I posted this on threads is for me, Facebook was for people I have a sort of a beer with. Um, LinkedIn was for people I'd met in business. Twitter was business, but broadly anybody else, you know, in the community. And I was trying to figure out where did threads fit into that whole thing. And for me, it's a Twitter replacement, right? But my Insta and my Facebook audience are not those people that I would I would have associated with Twitter and so I'm building from scratch, but also like you, I'm like, oh, suddenly being verified on, on Insta has a value to me. And you sort of click on the button and go, oh, you're in the wait list because everybody's doing the same thing, right? So it's, um, that's been interesting for sure. It's, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's truly an, in, you know, it, it's just such a smart move, yeah, right? And absolutely. and I and the learning that I think we can take from it is, yeah. you know, is that because so often what I hear is, oh, my big challenge is building, you know, an audience, and then yeah. and and then everybody wants us to build something else, and yeah. I'm getting unfocused, and yeah. now we're trying to build an email newsletter as we mm-hmm. build a blog, as we build a mm-hmm. thing, and of course, what we talk about all the time is focusing in on one, you know, getting mm-hmm. really good at one platform first, mm-hmm. true, but. We often, but there's often sort of a missing component of that to say, well, what does that mean? Like, mm-hmm. what, is, what does it mean to get good at one platform for, what does it mean, you know? Yeah. And once we achieve some level of success, yeah. and I would measure that success by the number uh, of subscribed, engaged mm-hmm. audience members that we have, when we do start that second piece, we just need to remind ourselves that we're not going to be starting from scratch because that that owned media audience is going to be there to help us amplify. I mean, I've, I've talked to a B two B company the other day, and they had you know twenty five thousand, uh, roughly twenty six thousand subscribers to their email newsletter who'd signed up. It's for their thought leadership stuff. It's a lovely newsletter, and it's been going okay for them. Yeah. But then when they launched their podcast. 
they immediately converted about 10% of those into Mm -hmm. podcast listeners. Mm -hmm. And the podcast has been an incredible success for them to get Mm -hmm. engagement and to get more leads and to get more um, Mm -hmm. interest and, and, and in depth. And so now they've got sort of a stratified owned media audience with their podcast as well as their email newsletter. Mm-hmm. So now podcast is classically not an owned media property, right? It's more of a, uh, of a rented land situation. Yeah. So, but it doesn't matter because you're, you're renting the land for your owned media audience. And so now you can really track those things and it's, and it becomes much easier to do so. Yeah. Uh, I, I quite like the way that we both approach this thread thing. You're from the audience perspective and I'm looking at it from the product perspective, but probably given our different backgrounds, but that that's absolutely right. And, and, um, Yes. And it's like a ratchet, isn't it? Once you build audience, you can build the next audience much easier than the previous audience. It's, it's really good. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Cool. All right. Well, that's fabulous. So when um, people are looking to for advice on how to build their audience ratchet, where might they go for that, Robert? You can reach us at the content advisory. I should just say content advisory.net. Yes. It's just our little website there. As you can tell, I'm, I'm highly dissatisfied with Still. our website. And we are, yes. Well, we're in the process of thinking the redesign and all of that kind of stuff in the future of what the website should look like. And we're a little bit of cobbler's kids there for sure, for but sure. it is and will change. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and the real key there is, is that, uh, yeah, in the meantime, that's where you can get all of our lo- lovely thinking and then of course uh, you can get me on linkedin or threads i'm at nice. robert rose on threads connect on threads nice yeah Are you uh, yeah you preempted my little where will we find you when we spin the dial on the interwebs but i'll use that time to say i'm also on threads i'm ian truscott on threads if anybody wants to find me there so there um, <laughs> thank you very much and the most important thing for me apart from finding us both on threads will we find you in the bar next week you will indeed. i look forward to it my friend i'll see you later Robert and please despite what he says about his website check out his links in the show notes so that's a wrap on episode 175 the rockstar CMO effing marketing podcast thanks to Jeff Todd and Robert for sharing their experience you can find all their links in the show notes along with our blog newsletter and all of our previous episodes on rockstarcmo.com and thank you for dropping a dime into your podcasting jukebox, selecting our track and jiving along with us. Please let us know what you think via the socials. Drop us a rating or review in your podcast app or just keep listening. I'm glad you're here. Next week, I'll be doing something different with Jeff away. But Robert will be definitely back in the Rockstar CMO virtual bar. And until then, have a great week. And I hope you can join us here next week on Rockstar CMO FM. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Danielle Wiley hosts a great podcast called The Art of Sway. Danielle, tell us what you talk about on the show. The Art of Sway brings listeners inside the world of marketing as seen through the lens of influence. So each week I chat with an expert guest for a lively discussion about connecting ideas with audiences in an attempt to uncover all the ways influence impacts how and what we 
discover, purchase, and recommend to each other. Wow. And where can people subscribe? Go to theartofswaypodcast.com. Find the show at marketingpodcasts.net or search for The Art of Sway wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.